Welcome to Element. If you're new, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room, which the communion tables look like desks and stuff because it's just awesome. All right, uh, so you can grab those. Yeah. You're welcome. I built them myself. Anyway, <laughs> uh, if you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Use Version. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll have the sermon notes and the verses and all the stuff that goes along with it. <clears throat> now, a couple things. I, I thought I would just let you guys figure things out as the month goes on. You can look around the room at all the little things that are here. But apparently, I'm supposed to point these things out to you. Um, we destroyed a piano for these trees. Uh, there's actually piano keys and stuff uh, strung. All, all these are actually pieces out of a piano. Which will make a lot more sense to you come Christmas. That's cool. All right. Bring your piano over anytime. We will rip it apart. You're welcome. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff up on the shelves. You can look through them. I actually brought my sock monkey from home this morning right there. Oh, how nice. Over here, I got, got my John Calvin bobblehead with the Cylon with his arm around him. Anybody watching BSG? Yes, in the back row. You and me. That's why they took it off the air. Because only we're watching it. <clears throat> okay, uh, one thing before we begin, and that is this. And the, we're not irritated about that. If it, pray for people when the thing, sirens go by. Anyway, uh, we're doing, selling the Hobbit tickets. So if you like last week, like, oh, dang it, I forgot Hobbit tickets. Uh, they're going to be outside this door this morning. So grab them. Again, buy some for your neighbors or one or two for your neighbors. Invite them to come with you. It's be great. We're out of a whole theater. We're going to do some little film and theology before it starts. You know, we're going to give away, you know, a Blu-ray edition of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It'll be a whole lot of fun. Grab your tickets. Did I say that? Grab your tickets. Again, if you don't grab your tickets, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble with our board because I conned them into this thing. So pick up tickets. Dag nabbit. Don't make me come after you. All right. Once you stand there reading God's word, we'll get started. <clears throat> this is Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. It says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as a people would understand that you are not a God that is confined to one place or one time or one people, but you are a God who surrounds this entire earth with your presence. And no matter where we go, you are already there. And that we can be people of full faith and confidence because you are not just set and locked in in one place, but that you are a God who goes before us, who stands behind us, and lifts us up at every point in our life. Amen. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, we can open to Genesis chapter 28. That's where we're at. Uh, so far looking through Genesis, you will see the history of this entire thing comes down to this idea called covenant. Covenant is the Bible's language for relationship. It is God's ongoing, unending relationship with his people that he has pledged himself to. We finally get to a guy named Jacob. We're going to spend the next couple months in Jacob's life. For Jacob, it's actually 20 years, so we only get two months of it, which is good for us. Uh, Jacob is Abraham's son, son. Led Zeppelin and U2 both wrote songs about him, so from a cultural standpoint, he must be very important to us. Uh, God makes Abraham into a godly man by simply his grace. He makes Isaac, uh, Jacob's dad, into a godly man simply by his grace. After Isaac, when you get these two kids, Jacob and Esau, you know, they're both totally messed up. There's not a great choice between the two of them. It's kind of like if we stuck you in a demolition derby against a tank and we said, so do you want the smart car or the Mini Cooper? There's a little. 
You know, Mini Cooper, because that'll really work well against a tank, right? You know, it's, it's just like there, there's not a good choice in any of this. You got Esau. Esau's is a man's man. He doesn't bathe, likes big trucks, got a couple of wives that, you know, wear clear heels, work at the Hooters on the weekend. You know, Jacob is a mama's boy. He drives VW Rabbit. Everything he owns is lemon yellow. He waits in line for the new Mariah Carey CD when it comes out. <laughs> and so God decides to work through Jacob. Why? Grace. Simply Grace. But up to this point, the only thing Jacob is good at is lying. That doesn't make a good patriarch of the faith. That the only thing you're good at is lying. And so eventually, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. An entire country comes out of this guy. But how does God change him? That's again what we'll look at over the next few weeks. But right now, Jacob is a total loser. He is a spoiled brat, rich kid from a believing family. So we're going to read our section in Genesis, and then we're going to talk about all these things that come after it, because I want to help you get the idea of saved and faith and what that looks like in the midst of it. So Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, which is where we left off last week. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, why is Jacob leaving home? Yeah, right. His brother wants to kill him. He tricked his dumb older brother and has to run off for his life. I believe God is doing this in his life right now to separate him from the rest of his family so his faith becomes his own. So it says, and he came to a certain place. This means it doesn't matter where because God is already there because if God wasn't already there, then there wouldn't be there. So he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now here's where God shows up. Verse 12, and he dreamed, which means some dreams are actually from God. Most are not. Most of them are probably just the chili you ate from Wiener Stencil when you're just gassy. But some can be from God. And this, this one is. And he dreamed. This is good. Uh, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, so God is standing, and said, I am the Lord. See, where Jacob's going, there's a lot of pagan gods in all these places. And God says, I am the only God. It is me, God, period. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Now, Jacob's not married yet, so God's making a promise as a wife and a, and a whole lot of kids, which next week you see gets very, very messy. And funny along the way. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you. This is the great promise of God. It's a great promise for Jacob because at this point no one is with him because nobody wants to be. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Again, God is not stuck in one place and will bring you back to this land. It eventually takes 20 years for this to happen. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The question is, does Jacob deserve any of this? Is this on, really? No, the answer is no. This is simply grace that God does this. Verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, because he's finally starting to get some theology, and said, and when he gets theology, he goes totally 80s for some reason, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So clearly he's got a ways to go in his theology. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Now a lot of people say, what, What's he doing here? What, What's going on? 
Well, this is what's called a stone of remembrance, to make him remember this is the place where God showed up, where God loved him, that God revealed himself to him. We sing this song in church. It's called Come Thou Fount. The second verse that says, says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. That's not like a Christmas, oh, Ebenezer Scrooge. That's not what that means. Ebenezer was this thing the Israelites set up. They were Ebenezer stones. These are the place where God showed up, where God helped me, where God took me to where he needed me to be. And so when you sing this song, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, our lives are meant to be a testimony to what God has done in them. Our lives are stones of help. We are Ebenezer stones. And so here he sets up a literal stone that does this, and he pours oil on top of this. Now, verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, so he makes a vow, he prays, and he starts with a terrible word when you pray. This is the word if. If he doesn't trust God's goodness and Christians do this all the time, especially like these college Christians are like, God, if you don't let her be pregnant, then I promise I will go live on a hill and be a monk forever. Right. Oh, you know, Jesus, I know I shouldn't date him because he's on drugs and he can't read. But if you save him, I will give you 10 percent of all of his drug money. We do this all the time. Right. All these ifs we throw with God. If and he says, if God will be with me. Now, what did God just say? I will be with you. Verse 15, it's like right there. I will be with you. That's what God says. We are just frustrating people. And will keep me safe in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. It's like, dear Santa, can I have an Xbox and a pony so that I come again to my father's house in peace? Then the Lord shall be my God. I mean, really, God, if you do all this, then you can be my God. Like, like it's such a great deal for God to get Jacob. I mean, seriously, where else is God going to find an unemployed, homeless, mama's boy, loser who rips off blind old men? Where is he going to find one? Other than America, obviously. But, you know, where else is he going to get one of those? And guys, I'll tell you, some of us are like this all the time. We think God is so lucky to get us. Oh, yeah, boy, man, if God just gets a hold of me, I'll give so much to him. No, we are lucky that God actually wants us. We're supposed to be a humble people. We don't deserve grace. We get grace. We need him, period. And so we should laugh at Jacob and then realize we're exactly like him. Pride is bad. Humility is good. It says, and the Lord shall be my God, and the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Again, he's got a long ways to go. And all of that you give me, I will give a t- full tenth to you. So here's Jacob in his life. He gets to this point. God shows up. Now, this is why I tell you that salvation is always about God. God has sought Jacob here. God has loved Jacob here. Salvation is in God's hands. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. We have grace. We have faith by a gift of God. It all is grace. And it sounds very simple when you read it, but it actually turns out there's tons of arguments inside and outside the church because of it and the whole nature of what faith is. A number of years ago, in response to this idea that you're saved by grace alone, through faith, one group of people comes along and they say, well, you can't earn being saved, but we don't want cheap grace. And so you can't just say, I want Jesus to be my Savior, but you've got to say, I want him to be my Lord as well. And so saving faith would include an intention to follow Jesus as Lord. This idea is called Lordship Salvation. The idea that it includes the intention to follow Jesus as Lord. So another group comes along from the other side of this and says, well, you can't say that because that's adding you know, works to your faith. And we're saved by grace alone. We receive faith you know, when we believe, and that's what saves. And so the one group looks at the other group, the Lordship Salvation people, and says, you're into works righteousness. And the works righteousness looks at the other people, and they say, well, you're into cheap grace. So who's right on this? This is why you come to Element, because I just step my foot in the middle of all of it and tell you what I think, because I'm right. (laughs) Okay, here's the deal. I I think they're both wrong. Okay, now, before you get all mad at me and storm out of this place and and leave Matt Markstone. (laughs) (laughs) 
Matt's in my GC. It's okay. I know where he lives. I'm good. <clears throat> so before you get all mad at me, I think there's a whole problem in this debate. It's not where the two sides disagree. I think it's actually over a keyword that both of them define incorrectly. But this definition has gotten so entrenched, and as everybody assumes, we think we know what it means without even thinking about what it means. And that is the word saved. What does it mean to be saved? I mean, God sought Jacob. God saved Jacob. He sought him out. See, I think the debate in this, essentially both sides of this are defining being saved as having met the minimal requirements of God. So the whole fight comes down to essentially just how much are you not allowed to follow Jesus and actually still be considered saved. Now, here's the problem in this, right? Jesus never says, I want to proclaim to you the minimal amounts of requirements for being saved. He never does that. And for very good reason. Imagine if you applied for a job. Not that Christianity is a job. Okay? But if you went and applied for a job, and at your job interview, you said, what's the minimal amount I have to do to keep this job? I know some of you feel like you want to do that at a job interview. But you, know, but, but you say that. Are you going to get the job? No, you're not going to get the job. At Easter, I talked to you guys about heaven, and I told you heaven is not the kind of place, this eternity with God, that any of us wants to be if you just want to do the minimum. It's, it's not like the post office. Sorry, Kim Simpson, if you're in the room, by the way. You know, Saving faith is never presented by Jesus as, here's the least amount of doctrinal truth you have to affirm to make the cut. That's not what he does. What Jesus says is, through me, through my life, through my death, through my resurrection, through these things, you will know the presence and power and favor and love of God that is available to you. So follow me. You trust me in everything, including, of course, your ultimate eternal destiny by a gift of grace you can't earn. And this is what God says to Jacob all the way back in Genesis. And Jacob doesn't understand it much like we don't understand it. Saving faith is this idea of this posture of total dependence, complete trust that enables us to receive eternal life from God, real life. All of our life is intrinsically related to this life. It's the vehicle by which we receive it. But then all of this leads to another faith issue that everybody wants to talk about. Big debates on this over the centuries. Actually, I had a friend of mine talk to me about this this week. We had this discussion. And this is, what is the relationship between faith on the one hand and works on the other? See, look what, look what Jacob says. He goes, if God does all this, then the Lord shall be my God. I will give a full tenth to him. So, oh, look, there's some, some works coming on their side of that. When Paul, the Apostle Paul writes about Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, in Romans 4.22, he says that he believed God and it was credited to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. In Romans 3.28, Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Later in the in scriptures, you get to a book called James. James is referring to a, the same passage Paul is about Abraham in James 2, 23 and 24. And James says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Great. They both agree. But then right at the end of this, James tacks on this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And does it seem at this point that maybe Paul and James are in a little conflict with each other. Some people think they are. They're like, oh, James shouldn't be in the Bible because he doesn't agree with Paul, or Paul shouldn't be in the Bible. He doesn't agree with James. Actually, I think they're both kind of saying the same thing because the issue here, I think, comes down to the nature of the kind of faith that matters to God, the kind of faith that actually changes the life and its relationship to all that we do in our lives. And this is the kind of direction that you'll see God take Jacob in over the next 20 years of his life. I mean, do you know that there is a real difference over the things that you think you believe versus the things that you really believe i mean there are beliefs that we hold to in a given moment but when circumstances change or time passes they're not really solid beliefs that are i'll give you a biblical example so you don't feel like i'm picking on you all the time all right in in the book of exodus god comes and he meets moses at a burning bush 
Then Moses and Aaron later gather all their Israelites together. Moses tells them all about God, the burning bush, what God has done, shows them some signs and miracles. And the Israelites, in Exodus 4.31, says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. And later what happens is after this moment, in the safety of being together, they say, Moses, you are our leader. We are going to follow you. Lead us out of Egypt. Lead us out of slavery. Now open to Exodus 14. Exodus 14. A few chapters later, they're leaving Egypt. Pharaoh decides it's not a good idea to let my entire workforce go, so he pursues them with his armies. The Red Sea is right in front of them. Pharaoh and his armies are coming after them. And these same Israelites in Exodus 14, okay, verses 11 and 12, what we just said, oh, Moses, we're going to follow you. Exodus 14, 11 and 12, they say this. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Is that what they said to Moses in Egypt? No. No, that's not what they said to Moses in Egypt. They didn't say that to him at all. In Egypt, they said, oh, we believe, Moses. Man, you're our leader. We're behind you. Let's get, let's get out of here. Then a crisis hits. They're like, why did you take us out of Egypt? We just to God all the time. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Things get hard. Why are you doing this to me, Jesus? I mean, we're crazy like that. And when they said they believed at that moment, they were very sincere. They, they really were. They thought they believed it. When crisis hit, there was trouble. That belief turned out not to be so strong. When their circumstances changed, it turned out they really didn't believe it at all. But what does God still do? God parts the Red Sea and takes them all through to the other side. Because it is God who is faithful in all things. Now, this goes on in our lives all the time, way more than you think. For example, if you were to ask me, you know, I would tell you that I think a marriage is a partnership between a man and a woman. I mean, we should, we should be equally serving each other and loving each other. And this goes to, like, household duties around the house. But, you know, around my house, I find myself doing a lot more household duties than my wife does. I also lie a lot, too, all right, because she actually does a lot more. Okay, whatever. All right. That was a bad joke. Okay, so... How about this? Okay, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive that we are supposed to be servants. So we come to a Sunday morning service and, you know, or to a gospel community. We open up the Bible and say, yeah, I believe that. We're supposed to be people involved in service. Then why is it like pulling teeth to get people to volunteer half the time? I mean, we talk about children's ministry on a Sunday morning. Easiest place to start getting involved. Once a month, once every other month, that's all it takes. Be like, I'm not going to do that. They're kids. They'll kill me. They're not going to kill you. You were one once. You're going to be okay. You know, and seriously, we want every gospel community to have a missional focus where they are reaching out to the community around them, where they're serving people around them. And yet some of our gospel communities still don't have a missional focus. And you need to get one. That's the point. We say, oh, yeah, we believe that. But do we really? Jesus says things like, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Don't be anxious about money. Don't be anxious about possessions. Trust your Father in heaven. You know, and so we say, yeah, I believe that. I don't, I don't trust in money. But then the economy starts to go bad. You know, the government takes the debt up to like, you know, 20 trillion. Then your savings account doesn't mean anything because hyperinflation hits and everything goes crazy. You get anxious and stressed and worried. And what do we do? We stop giving. Like, oh, I can't give. What's going to happen? And it turns out we believe we don't trust money as long as we actually have money. See, when we lose someone, not even that much, not like we're going to starve or something. When things get a little shaky, we find out what our beliefs actually are. And they're not what we thought we believed. When people don't understand this, this whole confusion about faith and works becomes profound. I think John Ortberg once said, we all have a mental map about how we think things really are. What that simply means is uh, if there's a fire, and I believe if I touch fire, I'm going to get burned. Some of you believe a cup of coffee gets you going in the morning. I think it just tastes nasty and gives you bad breath all day. But, you know, whatever. Some of you believe it, it gets you going in, in, in the morning. 
you're weird, by the way, because my, my wife's like that. I, I believe in gravity. I don't have to psych myself up to believe in gravity. I just simply believe in gravity. And the way you can tell what my core convictions are is look at my behavior. What do I actually do? Because we think we're sincere about what we believe, but it turns out most of the time that we're not so much. I mean, most of the time, we may not even be the best judge of what we really believe. In a lot of ways, you could even look at my life and by my behavior know what I believe better than I do. Because the real test of what I believe isn't what I say. It isn't even what I actually say I believe. It's what I actually do. Here's an example. You all came in here this morning, and you sat down in a chair. Did anybody go, oh, is this chair going to hold me up? Oh, my goodness. Did you do that? You just go, boom, plop your butt down. I mean, you probably should be like, this chair going to hold me up because we don't know how good they are, right? So, you know, but, but you just, boom, you sit down because you assume that chair is going to hold you up. That is an act of faith. You're like, well, boom, and, you, and the way you lived your life simply acted out your faith. You sat down in that chair. See, when Jesus comes, he seems most interested in changing what we do, but it's from the inside out. He changes from the inside, so our faith is in him, and we simply live to walk and show who he is with our lives. You've got to be clear. When James says that faith without works is dead, he is not saying, in addition to your faith, you have to add a certain level of behavioral compliance or you're not going to be saved. He's simply noting, if you claim to believe something and your actions are different, and your actions are a more reliable indicator of what you actually claim. That's all he's saying. That if you really trust and believe in Jesus, you are going to actually begin to live a certain way because it's just going to be naturally birthed out of your faith. Now, I love how Paul points things out so clearly. In Romans 1.5, Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. The obedience of faith literally means the obedience that simply comes from faith. That's what it means. It's not obedience you tack on after you believe because you're supposed to. It's simply actions that are birthed out of the faith that we have in Christ. Now, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Martin Luther, who is the great champion of justification by faith, right? Ever heard of Martin Luther? Okay. Champion, justification by faith. That was his whole thing. Anybody don't know, doesn't know anything about Martin Luther, they know justification by faith, Martin Luther. That, that's it. Martin Luther says this. Faith is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it has already done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. Huh. Justification, that's the guy of justification by faith because he says it's just going to be borne out by what we do because it becomes natural to who we are. He says it's just too impossible to separate faith in these works that God has designed for us to do to separate heat and light from fire. Your actions are going to reveal what you really believe, which leads to the next problem for most people, which is personal and a lot of times very quite painful for all of us. And what Jacob again learns over the next 20 years, what do you do when you don't feel like you trust God enough? What do you do when you want to believe, but you say, you know, I, I feel like I don't have enough faith. What, what, what do I do? It's because it's not about faith and faith. It's about faith in God. And so in Romans 4, Paul looks at Abraham, the champion of the faith, Jacob's grandfather. And the words get a little dense, so we'll explain this and as we walk through it. But Paul starts talking about a trust relationship with God that's available to all of, all of us, even when our faith isn't that strong. So Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes on and kind of talks about this. Now, go down to verse 17. He talks about God, says, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives who gives life to the dead and calls in a distance the things that do not exist. 
exist. Verse 18, And hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, you've got to go with me in this, and I'll talk about this. Abraham is presented here by Paul in the New Testament as his paradigm of faith. Here's the guy, the, the man of faith, and it's credited, reckoned to, reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, if you have been through Genesis, you're like, well, that's an interesting description of Abraham and his faith. Uh, if, if you're new, Abraham's faith did not look this impressive as Paul just talked about it. I mean, essentially, in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, leave your home, your people, everything you know, everything that's familiar, and go to the place I will show you, and I'm going to give you a son. You're going to be the father of a great nation. My plan is to bless all of humanity on the earth. It's my plan from the very beginning, and it's going to come through you and through your offspring. It's an amazing story. So Abraham packs up. He leaves. He follows God. They get to a land. There's a famine. He gets afraid. doesn't trust God that he's supposed to stay there. So the very next episode, still in chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah leave, and they travel to Egypt. They get to Egypt. Abraham says to his wife, Sarah, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman, and these Egyptians are a bunch of hooligans, and I don't trust them at all. So one of them's going to want you for their wife, so they're going to kill me so they can take you. So let's just lie and tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me. Then if one of them wants you, they can take you, but I'll be alive. Great plan, right? And Sarah says, oh, whatever, Abraham, you're a nut. Okay. He doesn't seem real confident that God's going to watch over him. And this happens. He throws Sarah under the bus. Pharaoh takes her into his harem, into his palace. And then Pharaoh gives Abraham sheep and cattle and camels and lots of stuff. And Abraham says, thank you very much. I just pimped out my wife and got stuff. This is wonderful. This is great. But then God shows up. And God is not happy about the situation. And Pharaoh then finds out that God is not happy about the situation. And that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh asks Abraham precisely the same question that God asks Eve after the fall. Moses is being very deliberate here. In Genesis 12, 18, he says to Abraham, what is this you have done? And what it shows is that the pagan Pharaoh is more concerned about doing what is right than God's man Abraham. And it's not just there in Genesis 12. You go to Genesis 20, and the eight chapters later, Abraham and Sarah, they're in the Gev, and the whole she's my sister thing, they do it all over again. After 11 years of trying to follow God, they're waiting on this child. Sarah says to Abraham, we've been waiting a long time. You know, you're 86, I'm 76, got to do something. Why don't you just have a child with my servant girl, Hagar? Does Abraham say, oh, heaven forbid. No, 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 no. we got to trust God in this. No. Abraham says, well, honey, you know, it's your idea. And if you think it's a good idea, I'll go along with it. Whatever you say. And it's a train wreck. And then 13 years after this, God comes to Abraham. You know, you're going to have a son through Sarah, your wife, and nobody else. Does Abraham say, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe. No, he laughs at God under his breath. God then comes again and says it again. This time next year, you will have a son through Sarah. What does Sarah do? She laughs at God underneath her breath. In Genesis 18, 13 and 14, God says, Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He has so little faith, he pretends Sarah's not his wife twice. Twice. He thinks once would be enough. Twice. So little faith, he impregnates a servant girl. So little faith, he laughs at God under his breath. And this is the man that Paul says he believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, Paul is not stupid. Paul is a rabbi. He knows this story backwards and forwards better than you and I will ever know this. And Paul never shies away from pointing out the stupidity of the people who follow God. So what's Paul's thinking? 
Well, what you have to understand is this. When you enter into Abraham's world, when Abraham says yes to God, he's starting from absolute scratch. There's no Old Testament, no New Testament, no Bible. How many Ten Commandments does he know? Zero, because there aren't any at all. And so there's no Moses, no Mount Sinai, no law, no temple, no priest, no David, no Psalms, no sacrifices. He knows exactly zero Bible stories because he didn't grow up with any, so he's never really heard any. He doesn't know Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord God. He doesn't know this. He has zero information. And then he was also raised in a brutal, superstitious society. When Joshua speaks to the Israelites, uh, many years after this, in Joshua 24, 2, Joshua says, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. In other words, Abraham's brought up like everybody else, a pagan and a holy pagan world. And as far as we know, when God shows up in Genesis 12, it's the first inkling that he has. There's a living, all-powerful, good, and personal God. And God says the first thing to him in Genesis 12, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Not a whole lot of information there, but the key is Genesis 12, 4. It says, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. You know what Abraham did? He sat down in the chair. That's what he did. He said, okay, I'm going to trust you. And all of a sudden, he just said, I'll follow. And he starts following because it became a natural outcropping of his faith. And yes, he falls a lot. And Abraham is deliberately not presented in the Old Testament as a brilliant spiritual genius who brings about the concept of ethical monotheism. He's just a dude. He's full of ignorance and confusion and superstition and cowardice and passivity. But why is his faith so strong? Number one, because of grace. And number two, because he left and waited for God. He said, I will follow. Even when I fall down, I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to trust you. You know, yes, I make dumb decisions all the time, but you are the God who saved me. And he waits for a son that only God can bring because he's not in denial about the fact there's nothing he could do. That's why Paul says he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He's an old man, old wife, an old body. There's no pharmaceutical company making Viagra to help him out. He just, you know, but he doesn't allow his life to be determined by what's possible through merely human power. He's completely dependent on God. Because the story does not depend on Abraham's certainty or, as you see through it, even his actions. It depends on God. See, Abraham doesn't say, oh, Sarah, we just got to believe God. We got to have a little more faith. We just got to claim the promise. No, because the hero of the story isn't Abraham. The hero of the story is God. And when you look at this, Abraham's dad, Terah, might even had stronger faith in all of his false wrong gods. But he placed his faith in the wrong gods. The main thing Abraham got right is that he didn't go back to Ur. He didn't fall down and say, okay, well, I'm just done, and then go back to everything he knew before. When he fell down, God lifts him up, and he follows God. It's a natural outcropping of his faith, and he stayed where God told him to go. In other words, you know, what you need to do is put your little faith in the big God, then big faith in a little God, because it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God, and our God is all-powerful, all-encompassing, all good. I love how Timothy Keller talks about this. He talks about when the Israelites are escaping Egypt and, and they come to the, the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chasing after them and God puts a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left and they walk through on dry, dry ground. Timothy Keller says this. He says, some of them, because human nature is this way, are probably loving it. Some of them are saying, in your face, Pharaoh, eat your heart out. And some of them are a little more timid and some of them are saying, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. Oh my goodness, I'm going to die. They did not all have equal faith, but they were all equally saved because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. That's the good news, and that is saving faith. This is why in Romans 4, Paul wedges his description of God in the middle of all this. He says, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. James Dunn writes, the character of Abraham's faith is determined by the character of the God in whom he believed. That is what's important. 
It is this God who shows up to Jacob in his imperfect backwards faith and eventually, after 20 years, will lead him back home. See, Abraham has a son named Isaac that God promised. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Judah that leads to this tribe of Judah that points to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And there has never been, there never will be anyone like Jesus. His teaching about how things really are, his life, his death on a cross, his sacrifice, his love, his resurrection. There has never been anybody like him. And so when we start the beginning of Jacob's journey here, what I would like you guys to do this week is simply walk by faith. That's what I want you to do. I do not want you to worry about whether you have enough faith. And I want you to focus on the quality of your faith. What I want you guys to do this week and for the Christmas season, because we're just walking into Advent right now, is focus on the object of your faith. Who is Jesus? This is why when Eric talked at the very beginning, he said, you know, we're all about Jesus. That's who we are. Because we, we have one drum and one sound that we beat, and it's boom, Jesus, boom, Jesus, boom. We're just about Jesus. That's all we are. And so this week, if you could, I mean, just make it a Jesus week. Make it a Jesus month. Make it a Jesus life where you stop focusing so much on, do I have enough faith? Do I have that? Where you just focus on Christ because when that happens, you naturally begin to follow and live and our lives become completely different because our story is like Abraham's and Jacob's. It does not depend so much on our certainty. It depends on our God and his grace. That's what it depends on. Paul ends Romans 4 like this, verses 22 to 25. He says, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It will be counted to us who believe in him as well. That is what is, this is a great God and salvation depends upon him and that is faith and that is saved and that is following Christ because when you focus on Jesus, you sit down, so to speak. You trust him enough that you actually begin to live and walk a life that mirrors who he is in it because that is where our faith rests and that is what people begin to see. Now, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back this morning. If you have never trusted Christ with your life, today is the best day to do that. And if you don't do it today, then tomorrow is the best day to do that. You know, whatever day you're at, if you've never trusted Christ, this is the best day to do it. And you focus on Jesus. Because, again, it's not about the quantity or the quality. It is about the God in whom you believe. And we believe in Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so if you have never trusted him, we invite you to go meet with the deacons and elders in the back and pray with them. If you have any other prayer requests, especially coming in to this season, go and pray with them. They would love to talk to you about any of those issues. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion. Communion is where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be this people who are redeemed by the grace of our merciful God. It's a remembrance of what he has done, that our God has not left us. Our God has actually sought us and bought us and brought us home because he is good. There are offering boxes on the side of all in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply then part of our worship, so you have that opportunity every single week. And there's some food and stuff in the back, so go back there and grab some food, meet some other people, because, again, it's this fellowship of community that God brings us back into together as we walk this life of faith, and we encourage one another to focus on Jesus and live and love and follow him so everybody knows who he is because he is God and he is, should be glorified in our lives and he is good. He is good. Also, grab a Hobbit ticket. We'll go hang out together and watch Furry Feet. It'd be fun too. <laughs>
Jesus loves hobbits. Right. Guys, seriously, uh, if I can encourage you in one thing through this Christmas season, focus on Jesus and him alone, because that will bring about everything you're hoping for in your life and everything that God wants to bring into it. Jesus first, everything else comes after that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand faith and that we would have this faith in you that, that essentially has us live in a way that you are honored and glorified by what we do because it's natural. It's not something we force ourselves into. It's, it's an outcropping of this graciousness and goodness that we believe in you, that you have saved us and you have brought us home, that it does not depend on our desire, not depend on our effort, but depends upon your mercy as our God. And so, Jesus, we thank you for being the author and perfecter of our faith. And I ask that we would be those who, in turn, begin to walk by faith. Not focused again on our quantity or our quality, but focused on our faith upon you. As our great God, who has sought us and saved us. And that in that, we become a very humble people. Who would point everyone to who you are and what you have done. And the great mercy that is shown to us at your cross and at your resurrection. And most importantly, we'd become a people who glorify you first in our lives. That we would not be about ourselves, we would be about you and your life and your grace. And our lives would then show that great grace that you have bestowed upon us to those around us. Father, be honored by the things that we say and the things that we do because you have first loved us. Even though we have not been deserving, you have still saved us. And we cannot be more thankful but we could be a lot more humble. So teach us to be humble and teach us to walk by faith. We ask these things in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.